0: The Proud Boys now standing back and standing by for their prison sentences. The lead starts right now. Today, four Proud Boys convicted of seditious conspiracy for their roles in the January 6th insurrection, making this the third time federal prosecutors have successfully gotten a guilty verdict on these very serious charges. What might this mean for Donald Trump and the special counsel investigation? Plus a homeless man held in a deadly chokehold by a stranger on a New York City subway car. Why this incident sparked a homicide investigation and is sparking important conversations about mental illness and vigilantism. Then, the fight gets underway to overturn an abortion ban in one state, a ban dating back to 1849. 1849, you heard that right, years before the Civil War, decades before women could even vote we're talking to the attorney general who filed the lawsuit. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today in our politics lead a major milestone in the prosecution of the pro-Trump rioters who stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021. And an effort to, in an effort to forcibly keep Trump in power after his resounding and legitimate election defeat. Today, four members of the far right proud boys militia group were found guilty by a jury here in Washington D.C. guilty of seditious conspiracy for their roles in the deadly attack aimed at preventing the peaceful constitutional transfer of power these are of course the same extremists you might remember Donald Trump declined to condemn during a presidential debate in September 2020
1: what do you want
2: to call them give me a name give me a white name
1: supremacists white supremacist right proud boys militia. stand back and stand by Stand back and stand by.
0: Not a condemnation. And they didn't take it as one either. The guilty verdicts include Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio, whom prosecutors portrayed as the ringleader of this particular element of the violent riot. Jurors found a fifth defendant not guilty on the sedition charge, although he was convicted of several other serious felonies. All five defendants now facing decades in prison. We're standing by for U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, who is going to come before the cameras and address these historic verdicts. Any minute when it comes, we will bring that to you live. But first, CNN's Sarah Murray starts off our coverage today with a look at what exactly the jury decided and why.
3: Four members of the far-right Proud Boys convicted of seditious conspiracy. USA! USA! A jury finding Enrique Tario, the former leader of the Proud Boys, Ethan Nordean, Joseph Biggs, and Zachary Real guilty of seditious conspiracy and other charges, in a verdict affirming the prosecutor's central allegation that they conspired to stop the peaceful transfer of power on January 6th by attacking the Capitol. In a trial that stretched four months, prosecutors highlighted Donald Trump's earlier pandering to the Proud Boys. Proud Boys,
1: stand back and stand by, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left.
3: Along with video and messages like this one. It's time for effing war if they steal this S. Making the case that Trump's election lies...
4: It was a rigged election.
3: ...inspired the Proud Boys to help gin up a revolution against the incoming Biden presidency. So we just stormed the capital Capitol. Yeah, we did. Defense attorneys argued their clients were merely scapegoats, and it was Trump who incited the riot.
1: We fight like
5: hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. The Proud Boys coming
3: in. But prosecutors said the Proud Boys were at the front lines of the mob. We love
6: Trump!
3: We love Trump! Riling up the crowd as the first barriers were breached. Today's verdict marks the third time prosecutors have notched convictions for seditious conspiracy in their historic prosecutions in the aftermath of January 6th. But the jury finding a fifth proud boy, Dominic Pozzola, not guilty of seditious conspiracy. He was not accused of holding a leadership role within the far-right group. He did, according to prosecutors, steal a police riot shield, using it to break a window that rioters used to enter the Capitol.
2: Victory smoke in the Capitol, boys.
3: The jury found Pozzola guilty of other crimes like obstruction of an official proceeding. Tarrio's indictment, especially significant. He wasn't in Washington on January 6th, having been arrested two days earlier and ordered to leave the city. But messages presented by prosecutors suggest Tarrio was readying for a revolution and helped create a command structure within the group in the run-up to the Capitol insurrection. Make no mistake, Tarrio told other Proud Boys on January 6th, we did this. Now, the judge declared a mistrial when it came to several other charges against these five defendants after the jury deliberated for about a week and could not reach a unanimous conclusion on these other charges. But Jake, as you pointed out, these five who were convicted are facing potentially lengthy jail time.
0: And seditious conspiracy, a challenging, a challenging verdict to get uh, for prosecutors. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Palance along with former federal prosecutor and CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Caitlin, What's the significance of this verdict uh, in the Justice Department's investigation into the January 6th insurrection?
7: This is a very significant verdict. We are waiting to see exactly what the attorney general is going to say about it. But we did get a statement so far from the Justice Department, the U.S. Attorney's Office, that tried this case. And they say that these men are being uh, convicted, found guilty by this jury of crimes that struck at the very heart of our democracy. That's the statement that we just received. Uh, But this is... One of those cases where it wasn't a clean result. There are four men convicted uh, and who are found guilty of seditious conspiracy, that that centerpiece of this case. One of those men, it was found not guilty, cleared of that. Uh, and what that shows us in this case is how the jury was able to distinguish between the leaders of the Proud Boys and the actors on the scene on January 6th. Of course, the leaders of the Proud Boys are the ones who are being found guilty. Enrique Terrio, the founder, the leader of the Proud Boy Boys, he did come out and he said uh, to our cameras that that the, the he is going to be respectful of the jury's verdict today. Jake?
0: Ellie, it, it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from everything I've read of the, of the testimony, um, it seems like th- these leaders thought that they were doing what Donald Trump wanted them to do. Uh, and they heard him say, stand back and stand by, and they thought that what they were doing on the Capitol that day was was in service of Donald Trump. Will this verdict make it more likely, do you think, that the Justice Department will will charge Trump for his role uh, in the insurrection?
1: Well, Jake, I think it should, but I'm not so sure that it will. First of all, these verdicts are a statement. They're proof of concept. Now, for the third time, we've seen that DOJ is... Fully capable of charging seditious conspiracy and obtaining convictions. Also, if you look at the way the prosecutors put this case together, they didn't have one smoking gun. They didn't have a particular communication where somebody said, we're going to overtake the Capitol by force and block the electoral count. Instead, what they did is they put together all the evidence, testimony and documents showing that there was talk of revolution insurrection and that they had a plan to go to the Capitol and to stay in coordination. So you can see how that model could be used against Donald Trump and others. But I think on the other hand, it's fair to ask, well, it's been almost two and a half years now, if no charge against Donald Trump thus far, why not? We just heard Caitlin read the U.S. Attorney's statement that this charge goes to the heart of democracy. Well, if DOJ genuinely believes that conduct goes to the heart of democracy and they have the goods to prove it, they would not have taken two and a half years to charge it. So I think it's fair to ask whether they ever will.
0: Caitlin, the Justice Department has now pursued charges against more than a thousand, a thousand of the rioters. What's next? Where does the investigation go from here?
7: Well, Jake, those people need to go through the criminal justice system. About a half of those, a little more than a half, have pleaded guilty. Obviously, the Justice Department is securing convictions at trial as well. But this is a long process. The Proud Boys, who were convicted today, all five of them were found guilty, depending on the type of count, uh, Pizzola and the others, Terrio, Nordine, Biggs, Real. Uh, They all will need to be sentenced. And how that plays out is going to be very closely watched in this courthouse. Because until this case... Much of what the Justice Department was doing was about people who were setting foot on the Capitol grounds and going past the police line on January 6th into the Capitol complex. Enrique Terrio, he was not. He was not even in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. So the fact that the Justice Department was able to get a conviction of him today uh, and to see what the judge, uh, Tim Kelly, in this case does at the sentencing later this summer, that is going to be a really significant thing. The other thing that's happening still, Jake, is there's still making arrests there are still 250 or so more people that the justice department is seeking to identify who were at the capitol that day and that are wanted on various possible charges including ones like assaulting police
2: officers and
0: ali we've talked about this now for years sedition seditious conspiracy that is not an easy charge to make stick it's not an easy charge to get a conviction for but this is the third sedition case that prosecutors have brought against january 6 defendants in in groups i mean Um, What's your take on that? Are you surprised that they've they've been as successful as they
1: have been? No, Jake, I'm not surprised that they've been successful in the cases they've charged. I think they've made compelling cases, but I also think it's fair to ask whether DOJ has been underly aggressive, has not been aggressive enough in charging seditious conspiracy. Yes, it is a difficult charge to bring and to prove. But if you look at the bigger scheme here, DOJ has now charged over 1,000 people connection with January 6th. That's good. Those are important prosecutions. But they've charged fewer than 2% of those people with seditious conspiracy. And don't just take it from me. Various federal judges have criticized DOJ on the record for being too lenient in the way they've chosen to charge these cases. We've seen judges call these charges, quote, baffling." and puzzling, and I quote, schizophrenic. So judges have said, why have you been so lenient charging things like trespass, but not the more serious, seditious conspiracy? I think we'll see Merrick Garland in a few moments take a victory lap, but I think we also need to keep the the broader picture in mind here.
0: All right, Ellie Honig and Kaylin Plants, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is Jonathan Greenblatt. He's CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for joining us. So your group, the ADL, calling today's guilty verdicts a significant victory for democracy. Why? What what actually changes with these verdicts?
5: Well, Jake, this deals a very serious blow to the myth that the Proud Boys are some kind of drinking group, some kind of fraternal brotherhood. The fact of the matter is, as prosecutors demonstrated, they are a right-wing extremist group with a violent agenda. They're misogynistic, they're anti-immigration, many of them espouse white supremacists, anti-semitic ideologies and jake they're committed to a kind of nihilism that was on full display on january the 6th so we've watched since this trial began and even before since they've come under scrutiny this group has mutated like a virus they're now doing more things locally but i really think that this pierces their veil of invulnerability now everybody knows like the oath keepers before them they're going to be you know their their injustice has been exposed
0: So the goal of the insurrection was to stop the constitutional transfer of power. Joe Biden won overwhelmingly, legitimately, et cetera. Why were the Proud Boys involved? I mean, if they're a racist, extremist organization, what was their interest? Just explain it for us uh, uh, in in keeping Donald Trump president. So there is a
5: convergence. Yeah. So there is certainly a convergence between the kind of white supremacist right-wing groups who hate Jews and other minorities, and the kind of armed militia types who are looking to suggest that the election didn't legitimately take place, although we know that it did. President Trump and his whole coterie of crazies really exploited this sort of paranoia. And you saw that on full display on January the 6th. So yes, when the president, as you showed in your intro, called on the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, they thought, Jake, they were his armed militia. And so they were riled up. And then when he called them to action, saying that it was going to be wild on January the 6th, they came in mass. They were, there was a lot of them who were climbing all over the Capitol building and in the mob at the, you know, on the mall that day. And so while again, it might not seem like there was an agenda there, Jake, there was an entire alignment between this right-wing extremism and the hate we've seen play out for the, in recent years.
0: We only have about a minute left before Attorney General Garland's going to start. Um, Trump is obviously openly embracing many of the January 6th defendants. He's called their imprisonment a disgrace. He talks about pardoning them. He's yeah. promoting a song sung by rioters on social media. Uh, and during his first campaign uh, rally this year, uh, what's your reaction to that?
5: It's repellent. It's disgraceful. And it, it, it debases the presidency and the whole process, democratic process. I mean, I worry deeply about President Trump and the people he would bring with him if he were to return to Washington. And I think the Proud Boys are just a start.
0: All right. uh, Jonathan Greenblatt uh, with the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, Thank you so much. We are waiting for Attorney General Merrick Garland to make a statement about the verdict. We're going to bring that to you live uh, when he comes to the dais. But first ludicrous. That's how the White House is now describing the accusations Russia is flinging at the U.S. over the alleged drone attack at the Kremlin. Then new worries about another small bank as more and more Americans want to know if their money is safe. Is it? Stay with us. Topping our world lead today, quote, ludicrous, quote, ridiculous, quote, a bald lie. Those choice words from National Security Council Spokesperson John Kirby earlier today responding to Russia's latest baseless claim that the U.S. is somehow behind yesterday's drone attack on the Kremlin. Meanwhile, Ukraine's air defenses repelled the most intense bombardment of Russian air attacks on Kyiv since the start of the year today, according to Ukrainian officials. This one shot down to a round of cheers from Kyiv residents on the ground. And now CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh takes us to the ground fight on the eastern front lines. Out here. Moscow is losing, but never kindly.
8: A shell flies into the old position this artillery unit used to sit in, just ahead of us. This unit of Ukraine's marines keep moving, keep the Russians guessing. Every time they fire, there is a risk they will be spotted and hit back.
9: All about increasing pressure on Russian lines as the counter-offensive looms and that crackle in the distance of small arms fire. Ukrainians trying to take down the drones being used to spot them.
8: Something rare is happening here
9: over the hills,
8: far into which these shells land. It's indicated by the unusual sight of Russian jet trails in the sky, one launching a missile here. Russian forces are being pushed back from around the town of Avdivka, we are told, from positions Russians have occupied for about nine years, before last year's war even started.
10: We went to Avdivka, we managed to go to the left flank of Avdivka. For a few days <laughs> we went to a kilometer, it was a pretty normal success.
3: They go the positions and go, go a little
10: bit. The forces are and
8: whether this is a weak spot in Russia's lines, or the counter-offensive in action, we do not know. But this pushback in the east is something these troops from the 128th Territorial Defense Brigade, training furiously, hope to replicate in the south, where the counter-offensive will likely focus. There is little shortage of ammunition here, quite the opposite. And they say the Russians already seem to know something from Ukraine is coming.
4: Їм страшно, тому вони стали більш більше стріляти по нашим позиціям. Вот, це по-перше, а по-друге, вони деякий час готувались до нашого контрнаступу, обстрілювали трішки не так часто, тому економили боєприпаси, і зараз не економлять, стріляють.
8: For all the simulation and noise, the reality on the front has been ugly, brutal. They show us this video, taken from a dead Russian, that shows his tank trying to escape. The Ukrainians know this
10: horror too.
8: It will be real again all too soon, heavy losses fueling their steps forwards.
9: Now, again, air raid sirens over Kiev this night and drones drone shot out of the sky. Increasingly successful Ukrainian air defences stopping these persistent waves of Russian drones over the past nights. But, Jake, you know, there are limits of what we're allowed to tell you under reporting restrictions by the Ukrainian military, but there's a definite feeling here of the counteroffensive building, if not momentum, growing somehow behind it. And I think there are concerns amongst ordinary Ukrainians as we see Ukraine's forces push towards occupied areas, that we may see yet more missiles and drones in their skies. Jake?
0: More remarkable reporting from Nick Payton Walsh, uh, t- talking to us right now from Dnipro, Ukraine. Thank you so much, Nick. Appreciate it. Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland is about to speak any second. Any 2nd Let's bring in CNN's uh, Ellie Honig while we wait for him uh, to come out. Uh, Ellie, what are we expecting um, Attorney General Garland to say? He's obviously been under a lot of fire, uh, even from you. Uh, for perhaps not being aggressive enough uh, against the January 6th insurrection. Oh, I'm sorry. Here he is, uh, Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland.
6: Today, the Justice Department secured the conviction of four leaders of the Proud Boys for seditious conspiracy related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. In addition, those defendants and a fifth member of the Proud Boys were all convicted of felonies, including obstructing Congress's certification of the 2020 presidential election results and conspiring to prevent Congress and federal officers from discharging their duties. The evidence presented at trial detailed the extent of the violence at the Capitol on January 6th and the central role these defendants played in setting into motion the unlawful events of that day. Today's verdict makes clear That the justice department will do everything in its power to defend the american people and american democracy since the january 6th attack the justice department has conducted one of the largest most complex and most resource intensive investigations in our history we have worked to analyze massive amounts of physical and digital data we have recovered devices decrypted electronic messages triangulated phones and poured through tens of thousands of hours of video. We have also benefited from tens of thousands of tips we received from the public. Following these digital and physical footprints, we were able to identify hundreds of people who, often masked, took part in the unlawful conduct of that day. I am grateful to the department's prosecutors, FBI agents, investigators, analysts, and others who have worked on these cases with extraordinary diligence, skill, integrity, and courage. Over the past two years, the Department has secured more than 600 convictions for a wide range of criminal conduct on January 6th, as well as in the days and weeks leading up to the attack. We have secured the convictions of defendants who fought, punched, tackled, and even tased police officers who were defending the Capitol that day, who crushed one officer in a door and dragged another down a flight of stairs, who attacked law enforcement officers with chemical agents that burned their eyes and skin, and who assaulted officers with pipes, poles, and other dangerous or deadly weapons. We have secured the convictions of defendants who obstructed the certification of a presidential election as well as the subsequent criminal investigation, in the events of January 6. And now, after three trials, we have secured the convictions of leaders of both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers for seditious conspiracy, specifically conspiring to oppose by force the lawful transfer of presidential power. Our work will continue. At my Senate confirmation hearing just over a month after January 6th, I promised that the Justice Department would do everything in its power to hold accountable those responsible for the heinous attack that sought to disrupt a cornerstone of our democracy, the peaceful transfer of power to a newly elected government. And uh, as I have said repeatedly, the Department will conduct all of its work in a manner that adheres to the rule of law and honors our obligations to protect the civil rights and civil liberties of everyone in this country. Today's verdict is another example of our steadfast commitment to keeping those promises. The Justice Department will never stop working to defend the democracy to which all Americans are entitled.
0: All right, that's Attorney General Merrick Garland uh, not taking any questions, uh, speaking after four Proud Boys, four leaders of the far-right militia. The Proud Boys were were convicted of seditious conspiracy earlier today for their roles in the January 6th insurrection, for trying to stop what Attorney General Garland called a cornerstone of democracy, the peaceful transfer of power. Garland uh, calling today's verdict proof that the Justice Department will do everything in its power to defend American democracy. Uh, Let's bring in CNN's Evan Perez and former federal prosecutor, Uh, Ellie Honig. uh, Evan, um, you can tell there that the Attorney General feels as though he's doing what needs to be done.
11: Yeah, Jake, today's uh, verdict certainly on at least getting four of these leaders of the the Proud Boys uh, convicted on this very rarely brought charge, seditious conspiracy, was a big deal for the department. It's something that the Attorney General and others uh, really weighed for weeks and weeks and weeks before they actually brought it And you can see the fact that he came out and spoke about this, uh, the importance that they gave having the jury after uh, 18 to 20 weeks here of trial uh, coming back and and, and rendering this this verdict. And let me say, just step back a couple of minutes here for, for a little bit here for to talk about what this means. Right. Uh, There were two parts, or there were a couple parts uh, to the effort to try to overturn the election. One of them was simply the the former president trying to claim that there was fraud and and doing everything they could to try to get the states to to not uh, send in their electors. The other part, uh, the Justice Department has pointed out, is that the the people who gathered there on January 6th to to make a last-ditch effort after the former president had failed in every other way they, these people uh, tried to uh, get into the Capitol to try to disrupt the proceedings of Congress and they nearly succeeded. If it wasn't, it wasn't for the fact that Mike Pence refused to leave and the members of the Senate and Congress came back and certified that election that night it, it very well could have happened, right? They could, they could have succeeded in this. And so one, one of the things that we heard from the attorney general there is over a thousand people have been charged for, you know, breaching the Capitol, the violence related to that. Six hundred so far have either been pleaded guilty or have been convicted. The big question that remains, and I think you're going to hear for this from Ellie a little bit, is whether the former president himself and people around him in the other part of this, uh, th- this conspiracy, th- this effort, rather, uh, whether they will face uh, similar charges, and we don't know.
0: Yeah, and, Ellie, I'll get to you in a second, but I want to go to CNN's Caitlin Palance, who's outside the courthouse here in Washington, D.C. Uh, Caitlin, Attorney General Garland noting that now both the leaders of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, two different, distinct, far-right militia groups, leaders of both have been found guilty of seditious conspiracy. And as we've talked about for years now, That's not an easy charge to prove in a court of law.
7: It's not at all. It is very, very difficult for the Justice Department to even get to the point where they want to bring that charge. It was a charge that first uh, was born out of the Civil War. uh, And then in recent years, until the January 6th insurrection, it essentially was very, very difficult uh, to gain any convictions on. And so since then, uh, the Justice Department has used all of the video. Garland was talking about thousands and thousands of hours of video, all of the photos, text messages, other messages that they gathered between these members of the groups to be able to say These aren't just people that arrived at the Capitol on January 6th and were violent there, were swept up in the crowd, grabbed a riot shield and broke into a window like Dominic Pizzola was convicted of today. But there were people who are in the leadership positions in both the Oath Keepers and in the Proud Boys, who were collectively wanting to use politics to spur violence in this country. And that they came together, made an agreement, and that agreement was that they would want to use some sort of force to disrupt democracy and to disrupt the functioning of the U.S. government on January 6th. It is not a small thing at all for the Justice Department to have these convictions today.
0: All right, Allie. It has been more than two years since the Capitol insurrection. What do you make of the pace of these convictions, the aggressiveness of these charges from the Justice Department?
1: Well, Jake, I think Merrick Garland and the Justice Department absolutely deserve credit for today's verdict. It's a big deal. It's a historic case. Same thing for the prior convictions for seditious conspiracy against Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. However, in the big picture, They have not done the job. When you look at seditious conspiracy charges, we've now seen 10 people in this entire country convicted of seditious conspiracy in relation to January 6th. 10 people. Does anyone realistically think only 10 people? We've seen the video of how many people were storming the Capitol, trying to obstruct the counting of ballots. So I think they've been insufficient in the way they've charged seditious conspiracy against the people who physically entered the Capitol. Now, who is the single most powerful political person who Merrick Garland has charged with anything in connection to January 6th. There is none. Nobody above ground level has been charged with anything. Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the Proud Boys, is the first person who wasn't physically present who's been charged in relation to January 6th. And Garland quoted himself just now. He went back to his confirmation hearing, and he quoted how he said, we will pursue those responsible for this attack. But he said that a bunch of times since. And he had said previously three words that he left out today at any level. That's usually the way he says it. We will pursue anybody at any level. They've not lived up to that in two and a half years, and I think it was conspicuously absent from what he said today.
0: But who would you go after? I mean, based on what we know today, who, who, at any level, sure. who, who else should be prosecuted? And, you know, keeping in mind what Omar on the wire would say, if you come for the king, <laughs> you best not miss.
1: Yeah, well familiar with that quote. First of all, I would charge... Anybody who breached the Capitol chamber that day, and there were hundreds or dozens of them who went in there, anybody who physically went into the Capitol and took steps onto that floor, what were they seeking to do to obstruct the electoral count? That meets the legal definition of sedition if they used any force, if they attacked a police officer, if they destroyed property. So I you would start with that. As I said earlier, this point. judges have criticized DOJ for not bringing enough seditious conspiracy charges, for being too timid in their charges against people who breached the Capitol. Capital. With respect to Donald Trump, I do think the evidence is there based on what we know to charge him, based on all the things he said, based on the reasonable inferences that we've heard from these defendants. They believe that he was instructing them and they reasonably took it to mean I want you to go in there and block the counting of the electoral ballots.
0: All right, Evan Perez, Caitlin Plants and Ellie Honig. Thanks. One and all. Still ahead, protesters demanding accountability after a man is killed on the New York subway after being put in a chokehold by another passenger. What exactly happened on that train. Stay with us. We're back with our national lead in two recent deadly tragedies, putting mental health back in the spotlight and our country's inability to deal with it. In Atlanta, a suspect is now in custody after allegedly shooting five people, five innocent people, killing one of them, at a medical center yesterday, Dion Patterson waived his right to a first appearance in court earlier today. Now his mother is apologizing to the victims. Mignon Patterson says her son was struggling with mental illness issues. She told WSB TV in Atlanta that he was angry the doctors would not give him a specific anti-anxiety drug in the minutes before the deadly shooting. Mrs. Patterson urged others that when someone is saying they need help, quote, help them. Don't dis- disregard them. They need help, unquote. In New York City, prosecutors are investigating after a man was killed on the subway after being put in a chokehold by another rider. A witness says that Jordan Neely had been acting erratically after boarding the train, ranting about being fed up and ready to go to jail. The witness says it didn't appear Neely was looking to attack anyone, but a man on the train put Neely in a chokehold for an extensive period of time, and that ultimately killed Neely. Neely's dad told the New York Daily News that his son struggled after his mother's death and ended up homeless. CNN's Omar Jimenez takes a closer look at exactly
12: what happened inside that subway car. A New York subway ride went from everyday commute to now the focus of an investigation into why a passenger put 30-year-old Jordan Neely in a chokehold, one that ended up killing him. Witnesses say Neely was acting erratically as he reportedly said he was fed up and hungry.
11: Start to yelling, um, violence language. Um, I don't care if I die, I don't care if uh, I go into jail, um, I don't have any food, I don't have any beverage, uh, I'm done. Um, and then he put out the jacket um hearing on the floor
12: Juan Alberto Vasquez was there and says despite any aggressive and frightening behavior Neely hadn't attacked anyone even if he was making passengers uncomfortable not long after Vasquez says another passenger came up behind Neely and put him in a chokehold Vasquez says he didn't hear any interaction between them beforehand he just heard them fall to the ground he shot this video minutes into the altercation
11: We arrive at the station the doors Open, all the people run away, and, and the guys stay in this position about eight or seven, eight minutes.
12: Another passenger appears to be helping restrain Neely. It's unclear what the others seen on video were doing. It's also unclear how long in total he was in the chokehold, since this didn't capture the start of it. But Neely later lost consciousness and was pronounced dead at a nearby hospital. The medical examiner's office says he died because of compression of the neck. No charges have been filed. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office says they're assessing all photo and video footage to identify and interview as many witnesses as possible.
11: People who are dealing with mental health illness should get the help they need and not live on the train. And I'm going to continue to push on that.
12: Last year, New York City's mayor, Eric Adams, was criticized for directing first responders and the NYPD to enforce a law allowing them to involuntarily commit people experiencing a mental health crisis as part of an attempt to address concerns about homelessness and crime. Protests in support of Neely have called for answers. It could have been
5: somebody there to help him, broke it up or anything, stop the whole situation. But it's like, at the same time, he don't deserve to lose his life. This be being on the train. I think he should still be alive today.
12: And that last part is the controversy here. Many people feel this shouldn't have ended in death. Now, a law enforcement source has told CNN our John Miller that Neely had been arrested more than 40 times previously. Some for things like jumping the turnstile and theft, but also in some cases, for assault, including reportedly unprovoked attacks uh, on the subway. unclear clear if anybody knew that um, at the time and the moment. Now, as for the person who did the chokehold, I reached out to him earlier today, and he told me he wasn't interested in answering any of my questions before he hung up on me. Uh, but sources have told CNN uh, the man was interviewed by police and then released Jake.
0: Omar Jimenez, thanks so much. Here to discuss is CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller as well as clinical psychologist Andrea Bonier. Andrea, let me start with the case in Atlanta, if we can. The suspect's mother is urging people to listen when their loved ones ask for help or appear to be struggling. How does somebody know when it's time to ask for their help for themselves or for someone in their life, when they might actually be a harm to themselves or to others?
13: Right. Well, Jake, we usually look for two factors. One is how much impairment somebody is experiencing in their daily life. So is their ability to find work affected? Is their sleep affected? Their eating, their relationships? A lot of times that's one of the first areas we can see that somebody's life is really starting to be derailed. And the other area is distress. How much pain does somebody themselves say that they're in? How much distress are they causing others? Sometimes this can be hidden and sometimes times it's going to come through the criminal justice system first, like in the cases of addiction, somebody might deny they have a problem. But when we look at impairment and distress, and of course, they're both on a spectrum, then we can see how severe something is. I'd say always err on the side of looking to connect somebody to help when there's any doubt.
0: It does seem also that people need to be looking to see if their loved ones have guns. I mean, in Nashville. Uh, that, that horrible incident as well as this horrible incident. Um, John, sticking with uh, what happened in Atlanta, we know that the suspect's mother was cooperating with police. How did knowing the information about his, the, the suspect's mental state af- affect the search and now the investigation?
14: Well, it informed police um, about him, about his issues, and how to approach him. In the end, it wasn't terribly relevant to the way he was captured. They found him, they ordered him to get down on the ground, and he complied. But had it turned into a situation where he was barricaded or there were hostages, it gave negotiators a great deal of background information so they could engage in active listening, engage in a conversation uh, where they could put forth some understanding of him. It gave them the characteristics that they needed to work from as well as some tipping and cueing about where he might run, uh, what he might do.
0: Let's go to the New York City uh, story now with Brenda Neely. Uh, Andrea, um, the city council speaker, Adrian Adams, is calling for accountability in the death of Jordan Neely. She said, quote, let's be clear, any possible mental health challenges that Jordan may have been experiencing were no reason for his life to be taken. His killing at the hands of a fellow passenger and the responses to this violence that took his life have been not only tragic but difficult to absorb, uh, unquote, unquote. Um, What's your take on this and and what's your advice for people who who see this video and, and are having difficulty today processing it?
13: Oh, the video is incredibly upsetting. And what I don't want is for people to get desensitized to this. We need to bear witness to these things that are happening, but we also need to protect ourselves so that we don't get numb I would say that anybody who's upset by this can really think about how can we gain strength and insight from this? How can we be better than this? How can we make a plan that if we saw something like this happening, we would try to intervene or we would try to get help sooner or we would scream that the chokehold can kill someone, which should be known wide and far, right? And so I think watching these videos is so upsetting, but if we can gain some insight from them and perhaps make a plan of how we would help someone in the future, then we can gain some strength from it.
0: John, uh, Neely's death comes more than a year after New York City Mayor Eric Adams launched an initiative to combat crime and address homelessness in the subway system, which included a plan to add more behavioral health emergency assistance teams Could this be seen as a failure of that plan to be implemented? How do you see this?
14: I see this as someone who was in the New York City Police Department um, at a time when I was there, where we were receiving calls of an emotionally disturbed person acting out on the street uh, at the rate of one every four minutes, um, 24-7, 365. It can be overwhelming. And Basically, the medical community, the hospital community has gotten out of the mental health business um, as a major factor. COVID made that even worse as they took the few remaining mental health beds and turned them into critical care beds. Uh, The medical business has figured out that that's not where the money is and the government on the federal level and the state level isn't putting the money into it, it it used to. So you have... A growing problem with a shrinking solution the mayor has tried to counter that uh, by pouring money into it uh, from the city's own coffers and um, urging the governor to contribute state money but at the same time New York City is faced with a homeless problem which has a mental illness um, factor in it that's fairly significant and now a migrant problem that uses many of the same resources in in terms of housing and social work so we're on the edge of a crisis.
0: Andrea, as a mental health expert, uh, how do you see it? Uh, it seems as though in, maybe in previous years, somebody who was potentially dangerous uh, would be involuntarily committed. Uh, and and um, if he was a danger to himself or others, and, and it doesn't happen anymore, is, is that right?
13: Well, I think it depends. I, what you're we hearing most of all is that even when there is an attempt to get somebody a bed, or to get somebody committed, or a parent trying to seek help for their teenager that's having a psychotic episode or a suicidal, that the beds aren't available, that the resources just aren't there. And this is a widespread problem across many jurisdictions. And so I think we really need to think about funding and how we can truly make a dent in this and not just talk about it.
0: John, very, very quickly, if you can, why isn't the guy who killed him being charged?
14: Well, in the district attorney's view, it is uh, about understanding intent here. This was um, an aggressive panhandler. uh, As you heard Mr. Vasquez say, he takes his jacket off, he throws it down. Uh, The suspect in this case said he saw him uh, ball up his fists and, you know, um, and was, you know, moving towards people and he decided to act. Uh, The question is, what would you charge him with? Uh, If you charge him with murder, you have to prove that intent. If you charge him with manslaughter, you have to Mm -hmm. prove that he knew that that was a likelihood. So they want to do more investigation, and I believe it will end up in a grand jury. Okay. John Miller and Andrew
0: Bonnier, thank you so much. And if you or a loved one finds yourself in emotional distress or a suicidal crisis, you can call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988-988 for free and confidential help. Turning now to our health lead, will an 1849 law, you heard that right, 1849 law banning abortion in Wisconsin stand the test of time? Arguments began today in a lawsuit that is seeking to overturn that 1849 ban. It was filed by Democratic Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call shortly after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade last summer. The Supreme Court decision reverted Wisconsin back to its pre-Civil War era law which penalizes providers who perform abortions even in the case of rape and incest. The only exception is to save the mother's life. A reminder, this law passed decades before women got the right to vote. With me now, Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call. So, uh, Attorney General uh, Call, you argue that Wisconsin should adhere to newer state laws. Uh, One would criminalize abortion only after the point of fetal viability. This law, of course, that I'm talking about was passed 12 years after Roe v. Wade legalized abortions. Now that Roe's been overturned, why should the state revert to a 1985 law and not, and not the pre-Roe statute?
15: Uh, well, We filed suit four days after Roe was overturned. When, when Roe was overturned in Wisconsin, abortion became generally unavailable for, for women in the state with very narrow exceptions. And we are working to restore access to safe and legal abortion. Uh, in our suit, we've argued, among other things, that there were a series of laws passed after Roe and some laws that directly conflict with the, the 1849 ban, and that it can't be both legal and illegal at the same time for providers to provide abortion care. Uh, because of that conflict, we've argued that the courts should find that the 1849 law is, is unenforceable and that the ban is not in effect in Wisconsin.
0: One of your other arguments uh, for striking down this 1849 law is this legal doctrine called desuetude, which allows laws to be rendered obsolete if they're just not used. And obviously this. Law wasn't in use for 50 years, but that's because Roe v. Wade only made it relevant again last year, right?
15: That's, that's true, though. Even before Roe v. Wade, uh, abortion bans were very rarely enforced in Wisconsin and around the country. And part of the argument we've made is that uh, to provide fair notice to people that laws are going to be enforced, they they need to continue being enforced. Uh, and And part of this is about notice and part of it's about the way that the legislature and other policymakers act, because Roe was in place, nobody acted to remove the 1849 ban, Uh, and uh, because of that, this this law really doesn't have the consent of the governed. And in fact, if you look, Wisconsinites overwhelmingly support restoring access to safe and legal abortion. So for that reason, as well as the the laws that were passed subsequent to Roe that, that impliedly repealed the ban. Uh, We've argued that 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 ban shouldn't be enforceable.
0: So with Roe overturned, with the 1849 law in effect, what's been the effect on uh, women and girls in your state?
15: Women have been denied access to safe and legal abortion. And I've had heartbreaking conversations with uh, doctors, for example, who talk about patients who come in um, who have either had to make emergency decisions, the doctors have had to, when they're not sure whether they can provide the care their patients need. They've talked about patients who come in, even when they have healthy pregnancies, concerned about what might happen if they can't get the care that they need. I've heard from uh, an OBGYN student who talked about how she wasn't sure if she was going to practice in Wisconsin because she couldn't get the training that that she needed and provide comprehensive care. This is having harmful effects on women in Wisconsin right now. So the sooner we can get this reversed and restore access to safe and legal abortion, the safer that women in our state are going to be.
0: Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call, thank you so much. Coming up any moment, police in California are going to give an update on a series of deadly stabbings near a university campus, and we'll bring that to you live. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, new questions going into horse racing's biggest day. Four horses die at Churchill Downs, all within days of each other, and right before the Kentucky Derby. Plus. We're going behind the scenes of a first-of-its-kind brain surgery, how it saved the life of a yet-to-be-born baby, and leading this hour, the White House flat-out rejecting Russia's latest brazen claim that the U.S. directed Ukraine to try to assassinate Russian President Vladimir Putin with a drone. Now, a CNN analysis finds the alleged drone attack may offer the Kremlin a chance to rally Russians in support of Putin as Ukraine's counter-offensive looms. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials say their air defenses repelled every single Russian air attack on Kyiv today, the most intense barrage on the capital of Ukraine since the start of this year. Also happening now, an update on three recent stabbings near the campus of the University of California, Davis. These stabbings left two people dead, injured another, and have rattled the entire community. Let's bring in CNN's Veronica Miracle, who is at the press conference right now. Veronica, uh, what are we expecting to hear from officials in just a few minutes, I guess?
16: Everybody
17: good? Yeah, well, Jake, they're Can't actually about to bring in people shortly right now. Uh, we understand that they are um, about to make an
16: announcement
17: here. Um, sorry, Do we have me. any
16: questions before we start?
17: Don't want to uh, interrupt what he is about to say here. Um, but there have been three stabbings over the last few days. Uh, two of those stabbings have been fatal. One of them left somebody seriously injured. It has left this entire community here rattled, including UC Davis. And we understand that they are about to make an announcement here uh, that they have a person detained in connection with the two homicides and this attempted homicide. Uh, now, since this all started, of course, the community of UC Davis. Uh, Um, You know, many students have been very scared, including the people that live here. And the university has even told some of their student groups to uh, reschedule some of their events, try to take those online, to not go outside, uh, because there has just been such a danger over the last few days, Jake, um, and it's really rattled this community.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Uh, We will uh, come. Well, So, so let me just ask you, uh, we're expecting them to announce you think that they they have a uh, a suspect in custody
17: yeah, that's right. Well, yesterday uh, they, they announced that they had a person of interest that they had taken to the station that had voluntarily uh, come to the Davis Police Station, uh, where they were, um, you know, interviewing and asking them questions, and now we understand that they are about to make an announcement here. Um, a lot of people waiting here to just see what kind of information that they're going to be releasing, uh, but of course, many people in this community hoping that they've made an arrest, um, that all of the three individual uh, stabbings we don't know if those are all related but there is much hope here that there will be answers about every single one of those stabbings and that this suspect whoever they have in custody that has been detained is connected to all three of those stabbings jake and it looks like uh, those individuals are coming out right now
0: okay let's move the camera let's move the camera over and uh and and we will listen in
16: All right, I'm Darren Pytel, the Davis Police Chief, and thank you for being here this afternoon. So we are here uh, to deliver the news to the entire community that everybody's been waiting to hear. But before we get into the details, I first want to express my deepest, sincerest condolences to the families of David and Kareem. The lives of David and Kareem were brutally taken this last week, and I also wish a speedy recovery to Kim, who was severely wounded in a knife attack just a few days ago. She's recovering in the hospital and we're hoping uh, for a speedy recovery and that she'll soon be released. These crimes were horrific. They're hard to imagine. They struck fear in the community and we know that. We've also experienced loss. David and Kareem were taken way too soon. We will never truly understand the sadness or sense of loss for their families and we will miss them. We hope that the announcement today provides, provides some level of relief. I want to thank the entire regional law enforcement system and national. We have allied agencies here and on our website you'll see a list of all the agencies that helped us out in the last week and there are many. Everybody wanted to chip in and provide a level of support to the city of Davis. I also want to thank our community. They've shown steadfast support for us and demonstrated support through their amazing acts of kindness over the last few days. And afterwards, I can get into some of the things that the community has done for us. I want to thank the members of the Davis Police Department. I couldn't be more proud of all of the work that they've done in this past week. It's been a busy week and most of them have received very little sleep. They've been working nonstop during this entire investigation. You wouldn't know it by the quality of the work being done. They left no stone unturned. Now for a short recap of why we're here. The first homicide occurred on April 27, 2023, at 11:20 a.m., and that's when it's reported. We responded to a welfare check over in Central Park, and the responding units found a person deceased, David Bro. He had been stabbed many times, and it was uh, apparent that it was a particularly brazen and brutal attack. (coughs) We launched an investigation collected a lot of physical evidence, and immediately started looking for who may be responsible. The problem with this one is there was no eyewitnesses, and so we had to wait for evidence to come back through the investigation. And then just two nights later, we had another attack. And this one, Kareem, was in the park, Sycamore Park, located in Central West Davis, And he was violently attacked and stabbed many times. A witness had seen the last part of the attack, had a short interaction with the suspect, who took off going uh, westbound uh, out of the park. We immediately started a, a search, but we weren't able to locate the suspect that night. Two nights later, we had another attack. Kimberly was in a tent, located at 2nd and L Street, and she had just gone to bed. She was alone. And we had a person slash the side of the tent, reach in and stab her several times. She called 911 and said that she had been stabbed. The responding officers arrived shortly thereafter. They conducted a, a search, but again were unable to locate the suspect. She was transported to the UCD Med Center she underwent surgery for the, the stab wounds, and she is recovering, which is good news. The initial crimes were both investigated as homicides, and of course we launched a, an attempt homicide investigation for the third stabbing. And everybody's asked, are the, the three crimes related? And it's, well... We investigated, it was certainly more probable than not that they were. We didn't know whether we had several attackers out there or one, so we had to keep all options on the table. So this brings us to the arrest, and this is how it went down. Yesterday afternoon, we had about 15 colors over near Central uh, West Davis, near Sycamore Park, and they reported seeing a person who matched the description that we had provided after the third attack all of them reported kind of the same thing a person was at the park was wearing the same clothing that we had put out in the description and that he was wandering around. We were a little behind on some of the calls like had seen him a couple minutes ago or 10 minutes ago, but eventually one of the callers that I'm following him right now and was able to lead us to the to the person. He was stopped by several patrol officers, and uh, they had a a short conversation. It appeared that he had some physical evidence on him uh, that might be part of the investigation, and he was wearing really the same clothing that was described by the witnesses after the third attack. This looked like a match. So they spoke to him briefly, and at this point, It was becoming a little bit of a neighborhood spectacle, so they asked if he would uh, be willing to come downtown here so that they could speak with them, and he agreed. The detectives met with him, and they spent many hours uh, interviewing him. And based on the interview, physical evidence that we were able to collect from him and the clothing and other physical evidence at that point that was starting to come in, we decided to first arrest him for. Possessing a large knife that was on his person when he was picked up. He was uh, wearing a backpack and in the backpack was a, a large knife that was. Consistent with one that we were looking for based on evidence from. The first homicide. So having this information. Uh, the detectives worked pretty diligently throughout the night. and. Just about an hour ago, placed him under arrest on two counts of homicide for David Bro um, and uh, Najim, Kareem Najim, and for one count of attempt murder for Kimberly. He is now at the Yolo County Jail, and the district attorney will be reviewing our reports in the coming days to determine any final charging decisions. I can't thank the city of Davis and our community for their, enough for their support. It's pretty remarkable. Fifteen people took a description that we had put out and actually all of you in the media had helped us put out and they saw a person who matched the description and they called. And that led directly to the arrest in this case. This was a partnership between all the law enforcement professionals, some that you see up here, and our community members who stepped up. That's pretty remarkable and pretty amazing. These horrific crimes have resulted in immeasurable loss to the victim's families, and friends, and to our community. But as we move forward together, it also demonstrates Davis has compassion, a deep sense of community, when faced with tragedy. We are a resilient community. Having been here my entire life, I can tell you we've been through tragedies before and we'll get through this one. I have no doubt that normal life will resume today. There's still more much work to be done and we'll get it done. We're committed to a successful prosecution now. And now Mayor Arnold is going to speak. And after he speaks, I'll come back up and answer any questions.
18: Thank you, Chief. Thank you for all of your work and your dedication over uh, the course of this investigation. It's because of the fine police work that we are here today to announce that the individual believed to be responsible for these horrific, brutal attacks is no longer free to terrorize our community. This is a remarkable achievement for the Davis Police Department to bring these cases to this point so quickly. The arrest today is the culmination of excellent investigative work by the Davis Police, as well as our regional and national law enforcement partners. I commend and thank them these professionals who worked around the clock to ensure that this criminal is taken out of our neighborhoods and is now in custody. I also commend the people of Davis who worked together to keep each other safe and supported, and who shared tips and critical information To help crack this case, a murderer is off the streets and our families will sleep easier tonight.
0: That is the mayor of Davis, uh, Mayor Arnold. Uh, Davis is a town uh, west of Sacramento in California. Davis, California police just announcing that they have arrested a person in connection uh, with serial stabbings, two brutal stabbing deaths. Uh, and one attempted homicide earlier this week uh, near the campus of the University of California, Davis, um, last week. Uh, the police chief saying that the arrest occurred about an hour ago. Police have yet to identify the suspect publicly, um, but they say they found a large knife in his backpack, one that matches the description of the murder weapon. Um, let's bring in CNN's chief law enforcement and, and intelligence analyst, uh, John Miller. Uh, John, first of all, we should note, very interesting uh, the police chief Daryl Paitel uh, talking about, and we should mention the names of the victims here: David Bro uh, and uh, Karim Najim, uh, who were killed, uh, as well as a, a third uh, individual, a woman, um, Kimberly. They, uh, Kimberly, the, the the police crediting the public, saying they gave a description of the individual, and 15 members of the Davis community identified this individual, which seems uh, a remarkably. A positive result, given how many false leads that can usually uh, result in?
14: Well, I think what we're learning is public engagement um, plays a giant role in these things. Now, part of why we're learning that is because we live in an era where you do a video canvas and you come up with an actual uh, film of the person or you freeze that and you get a good still of the person Uh and, and that is a great way to get more accurate community engagement. But in this case, there was no picture. They did it the old-fashioned way. They put out a description of a guy wearing black Adidas track pants with black sneakers, a white stripe down the side of the pants, long curly hair, and, you know, carrying a, wearing a dark shirt and a backpack. And that's what people were looking for. And... People spotted him. They kept calling and calling until one person stayed on the line with them and literally followed him until police could get there. Now, that's community engagement.
0: Police were at first reluctant to call this a serial stabber. They wanted to make sure that the individual who stabbed uh, David Bro is the same one who stabbed uh, Kareem Najim. both of those fatal, as well as the woman Kimberly uh, earlier. Um, I guess they were hoping to get DNA to link the crimes.
14: Well, it is very common in the case of a blitz attack, uh, one of these frenzies attacked with multiple stab wounds, that the that the um, that the perpetrator will also contribute DNA at the scene, often his own blood, um, as a hand may slip off the knife during these multiple stabs. Um, in this case, the the police chief was uh, slightly cagey there, saying you know, we recovered evidence from his backpack and knife. We also recovered his clothing and evidence on him. That's probably, um, possibly an allusion to DNA, either wearing the same clothing that the perpetrator wore during those clothes. He should have probably had trace evidence from the victims um, in terms of blood on his clothes, if not his own as well. So, uh, while they questioned him for hours, uh, running those tests, uh, submitting those samples, and waiting for those results is probably what helped tie this case together for them beyond the circumstantial, the description, and the possession of the knife.
0: Yeah, and we're getting word now that the individual uh, being being uh, who's a suspect uh, is 21-year-old Carlos Dominguez, uh, identified as someone who was a student at UC Davis uh, until... Uh, last week. Um, what do you make of that? And based on what you heard from police, uh, do you think students and members of the UC Davis community should feel, should exhale, should feel it's, it's relatively safe to go back uh, to life as normal?
14: Well, they certainly should. And based on, and they should based on their own statements, um, their own assertions that we heard this week from UC Davis students saying, you know, this was the place where you could always walk around, a small town that was really safe um, so this, this event is clearly an anomaly in a town that is not a high-crime place. Uh, the fact that the individual charged uh, was, for lack of a better term, one of their own, um, a student, until very recently, that's going to be a shock to the UC Davis system. People were expecting a drifter. Uh, they were expecting someone from outside the community. Um, in this case, this is going to be close to home, and that's going to require some examination. What happened there? to turn this person into an enemy of the community he was once a vital part of.
10: Yeah.
0: Chilling. John, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Coming up, the back and forth between the White House and the Kremlin intensifying. Russia claiming that the U.S. may have been behind the alleged drone attack on Moscow with no evidence they make that claim. Stay with us. And we're back with our world-lead Ukrainian officials say that their air defenses repelled every single Russian air attack on Kyiv earlier today, the most intense barrage on Ukraine's capital since the start of this year. CNN's Nick Robertson is live for us in eastern Ukraine. And Nick, how are Ukrainians gearing up for this anticipated counteroffensive?
2: Yeah, most people here are wondering where it's going to start, when it's going to start. They've heard so much about it. Uh, they obviously look at these drone strikes coming from uh, coming from Moscow. The one in Odessa, fifteen of uh, fifteen drones fired there, twelve got twelve were shot down. On the tail fins, were written the message from Moscow, from the Kremlin, uh, apparent reference to this uh, alleged uh, assassination attempt on President Putin. But for that counteroffensive you're talking about, um, the government is not saying anything, but what we've been witnessing are troops getting ready, very ready for that moment when it comes. Ukraine's counteroffensive is edging closer momentum building at secret locations. These battle-hardened storm troops in live-fire training, honing tactics to take trenches just miles from the front lines, where they often put their own lives on the line. Vlad shows us video of him storming Russian trenches a few days ago. He shouts to the Russian troops to surrender. They shoot back. The fight continues. They wouldn't surrender, he says. We killed three of them with our grenades. When you're already fighting so well, what's the point of doing extra training like this? You can't do enough training, he says. You must do it all the time to be ready. There is every possibility the next time these troops go back to the front line, it could be part of the big counter-offensive operation. They don't know, and their commanders certainly aren't saying. Most of these troops in their early 20s. The U.S. made M113 their training with a 60-year veteran of the type of infantry assault they'll need to punch through Russian lines. Train and train again,
10: drilled into these young warriors. It's never enough to do... uh, Like You must train every day. If you're not training, you will die. That simple? Yeah.
2: And have you seen, you've been in the front line, have you lost friends? Uh, Yeah, I lost a a couple of friends. Uh, I don't know what to say else. It's terrible. Psychologically, you know that
10: could be you. Uh, yeah, but like, we all can die in one minute. It, for me, it's nothing. Like, okay, so what? I'm defending my country. I'm dying like a hero. It's okay for me.
2: Confidence here has been hard-earned.
10: Comradery
2: cemented in action. The test of their training coming The only question, when? So when Ukrainians see those M113s lined up along their highways, or the British-made Mastiffs, or the US-made MRAPs, these important infantry fighting vehicles to take territory, when they see those convoys moving on the highways here, they're going to know this counteroffensive is getting pretty close. Jake?
0: All right. Nick Robertson in eastern Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Oksana Marakova. Madam Ambassador, thank you for joining us. What, What do you make of these obviously baseless claims by Russia that Ukraine, now the United States, is behind the alleged drone attack at the Kremlin?
19: Thank you. Thank you very much, Jake, for having me. Well, this will not be the first time Russia is lying. They have been lying during all 435 days since they reinvaded us and do all these horrible war crimes. Ukraine has been very clear that uh, is is in no way we're involved in this attack. We don't know what it is. We don't know whether it's a provocation organized by their forces or whoever did that. But what Ukraine is doing, again, for more than 400 days now, is defending our country on our territory. And the Russian terrorist attacks Those are the real terrorist attacks. We have seen them since February 24th last year with missiles, with drones, with Shahid drones and everything else.
0: We just saw our reporter in Ukraine showing us how elite Ukrainian troops are preparing and training for this expected counteroffensive. The U.S. Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, testified to Congress today on that topic. Um, Take a listen.
12: But Even if Ukraine's counteroffensive is not fully successful, the Russians are unlikely to be able to mount a significant offensive operation this year. In fact, if Russia does not initiate a mandatory mobilization and secure substantial third-party ammunition supplies beyond existing deliveries from Iran and others, it will be increasingly challenging for them to sustain even modest offensive operations.
0: Do you do you agree with that assessment, Madam Ambassador? Do you think it's going to be tough for Russia to sustain even even modest offensive operations?
19: Well, we have seen them failing miserably since the offensive, uh, but since their offensive started, since their war started, uh, we already liberated more than half of what they have taken. We liberated; uh, they were not able to take Kiev in three days as they wanted to. But on the other hand, we don't want to underestimate the enemy. I mean, it's still a brutal aggressor with a lot of weapons. And we see on a daily basis what they're capable of. When they are not uh, capable in winning uh, on the front lines in a fair battle, they just resort to violence and uh, kill, rape, uh, kidnap our Ukrainian children. So we are motivated, unlike them. That is true. And um, uh, regardless, again, of the fact... Uh, Whether we have enough weapons or do not have enough weapons, there is no other choice for us. We will continue defending our country until the full sovereignty is restored and until Russians are out of our land.
0: Where are the Ukrainian people? Where is the Ukrainian military when it comes to the many requests you've made for uh, jets, for tanks? Uh, Has anything arrived in the country uh, in a way that you're able to use?
19: Well, we are discussing all the capabilities with our our friends and especially with the U.S. here. You have seen the last Ramstein meeting, uh, for which we are grateful personally to Secretary Austin, who takes time and every month not only participates in bilateral discussions with us, but gathers more than 50 countries now to discuss together what can we do more. So some of the... Uh, items we already see on the battlefield, like Bradley's and others, you know, we already see them in Ukraine. Some we will surprise Russians uh, uh, when they will see them in the battlefield, and some we are still discussing, but we do need all the capabilities in order not only to defend the country now, but also to build the endurance strength for the future, because unless... uh, some miracle happens in Russia, they will continue to be a threat to all of us, to yeah. all democratic countries.
0: So Politico is reporting that Ukrainian officials in Kiev are withholding details of the counteroffensive from allies, perhaps understandably uh, citing concerns over the recent leaks of highly classified US documents. Um, I mean, it makes sense. I'm not faulting you. Uh, you, you wouldn't want more than a few uh, key people to know the time and place of any planned counter offensive. But this does seem to suggest that the leak did some serious damage on the U.S.-Ukraine intelligence sharing relationship.
19: I would disagree. I think the trust and cooperation between our countries is at the levels we never had before. And I think it's understandable that we will no, never talk publicly about uh, neither what we plan for the counteroffensive or what do we share with each other. But uh, Ukraine is very uh, happy with the cooperation and with how we together are working to defend our country.
0: Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Oksana markova always an honor to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now to Russia, where detained American Paul Whelan got his first in-person visit From U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Lynn Tracy, the U.S. Embassy in Moscow posted this after the visit. Quote, Paul has been wrongfully detained in Russia for more than four years, and his release remains an absolute priority. As you may know, the former Marine was arrested and sentenced in 2018 to 16 years on espionage charges that he vehemently denies. Right now, he's in a prison camp called IK-17. It's situated in a remote region of Mordovia, which is about an eight-hour drive southeast of Moscow, conditions there." are, quote, extremely bad, according to Whelan himself. Paul Whelan's brother David says he has also spoken to Paul recently. Paul told David that he's worried he will be left behind again after two other wrongfully detained Americans, Brittany Griner and Trevor Reed, were brought home last year. Still ahead, just who are the accused Capitol rioters Donald Trump is glorifying at his campaign rallies with this bizarre video. That's next. Four members of the Proud Boys were found guilty of seditious conspiracy earlier today for their role in the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. That was an attempt to overturn the 2020 election. These are members of the same group that Donald Trump, when asked to condemn, instead told the Proud Boys, stand back and stand by during a presidential debate. And beyond the Proud Boys, of course, the former president continues to elevate and embrace his supporters who stormed the Capitol on January 6 to stop the constitutional peaceful transfer of power. Trump kicked off his first campaign rally for the 2024 election with a song called Justice for All. I, so at I
1: pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America,
0: So you get the point. It's a little bit of a mashup there. The song is sung by what is called the J6 Prison Choir. It's a mix of the National Anthem and the former president reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. The J6 Prison Choir, this is a group of accused Capitol rioters who are inside a D.C. jail who apparently sing the National Anthem every night.
1: Our people love those people. What's happening in that prison? It's a hellhole. These are people that shouldn't have been there.
0: So the prisoners took a cell phone video of themselves singing, and that was posted to a site called Rumble. And that video has been posted on social media by some of the attorneys and Trump allies.
3: Whose
4: broad stripes and bright stars? Who's
0: Now, the Washington Post did yeoman's work and went through and identified the, these a, alleged criminals, these men in the video. Here are just some of the highlights the Washington Post noted. Ryan Nichols gets the one holding the phone and narrating the video, the 32 year old. He's pleaded not guilty to multiple charges, including assaulting a federal officer with a weapon. Jonathan Mellis, he is the long dark hair in the glasses, among the charges he faces, assaulting officers with a dangerous weapon. The Washington Post says he's expected to plead guilty to the charges tomorrow. Prosecutors say this is malice at the Capitol hitting officers, police officers, law enforcement officers, with a giant stick. His mother told the Post it meant so much to hear her son's voice when she first heard the song Justice for All. Julian Cater, who was actually introduced by name in the prison cell phone video, and his brother confirmed his identity to the Post, Cater has pleaded guilty to using a chemical spray, on Officer Brian Sicknick. Sicknick, you may recall, died the day after the insurrection. The medical examiner concluded the insurrection was a factor in his death. The brother of Brian Sicknick told The Post he was, quote, disgusted by Trump's glorification of these accused criminals. It seems that Donald Trump is, of course, not going to stop celebrating these rioters, these people who allegedly attacked police, as long as it fires up his base on the 2024 campaign trail. Let us discuss. Anna, go.
20: Well, um, I feel exactly the same way as Officer Sicknick's uh, brother. I think it is disgusting, but I think it's more of Trump, right? There is absolutely nothing in the story that is shocking at this point. Well, except for the f- part about uh, prisoners shooting selfies of each other and then being able to send them to social media platforms, which I think is crazy. And the D.C. Correctional Department has got some explaining to do, um, Look, at the, the contrast could not be more stark. Are you uh, with somebody, you now know what you're voting for when you're voting for Donald Trump. You are voting for someone who not only promoted uh, the insurrection back then, but p- continues to promote that insurrection, to glorify it, to turn them into heroes, to celebrate it, to embrace it today. That's, that's the contrast, and that's the choice for Republicans, the law and order party.
10: Whatever happened to back the blue? These guys
0: attacked cops.
10: Exactly. It's it's back the blue until the blue is doing something that you don't like, like standing up for an election. You know, Anna's right. This is not necessarily surprising, but it is disturbing when you see the pull that Donald Trump still has on the Republican Party. We'll see what happens throughout the primary. But I am not comforted by the fact that so many Republicans still support him, despite the fact that he no supported an insurrection. And it's still saying these criminals are okay people and then people are, are really upset that they're in prison.
21: It is disgusting uh, to see them sing justice for all. While they may sing in prison about um, justice for all, Merrick Garland and the DOJ delivered on message justice for all, justice for America, in the conviction of four of the Proud Boys for their role in January 6th. What they did is worthy of guilty convictions, and we're going to see many more of them. These are not just frat boys who are in a frat to drink. These are people that unlawfully tried to stand in the way of the peaceful transfer of power. And I think um, four words that we heard from Merrick Garland today that should uh, frighten Donald Trump more than anything, aside from the fact that these people are convicted and and others will follow. When Merrick Garland said, my work will continue, that should worry Donald Trump and any of these others who helped – lead this call to these people. These proud boys and these people convicted are foot soldiers who are waiting for word for someone to storm the Capitol. And they did so with draft dodger Donald Trump saying, stand back and stand by and move on to the Capitol.
22: Yeah. I mean, I think once it was clear that after January 6th, you would not see the Republican Party um, break from Trump, you would not see. And in fact, you've reported on this a lot, the diminishment of what happened, right? Kind of undercutting yeah. what happened. Well, now he has to find a way essentially to spin that, right? There's no divorcing himself from that day. And he has always told his voters that he is a proxy for them against the government. And I think this is a good example of him trying to be that proxy in the moment.
0: Something else that's going on that's very interesting is uh, Kaylee McEnany, the former Trump White House press secretary, uh, just announced on Twitter that she is going to be doing the The 8 p.m. hour all next week uh, that Tucker Carlson used to have. I'm sure I don't need to remind anybody here. Kaylee was one of the biggest spreaders of election lies in that period after the election. She would go on uh, Fox all the time and just repeat these lies over and over and over. Um, So if anybody thought that the $787.5 million settlement was going to make Fox recalibrate how much they want to be associated with those lies... I guess we have our answer.
20: Look, uh, Fox News is what it is, and it's not going to change its stripes anytime soon. I was shocked. I mean, the, the, you know, the Kaylee part is yeah, and her lies, her spreading conspiracy theories, and her lies got her a job at Fox News. But I, I was, I was actually shocked the other day, and it takes very little. Uh, it takes a lot for shock uh, for Fox News to shock me these days. But on the day when incredibly disturbing texts from Tucker Carlson were revealed. About about how white
0: men don't fight that way or something like that. and about
20: how he was basically at some point rooting for the death of this kid who was getting beat up by three white men. When that, you know, on that same day, Jesse Waters was on the air talking about how he had seen a family of illegal immigrants. And somebody said, well, how do you know they're illegal? He said, oh, you can tell. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so... I guess the
22: difference is they're not putting it on text form that w- that would will, that will get on, you know, that would be part of a trial. The cold fact is, though, they have lost ratings in his absence, like a profound dip. They're trying to stem that hemorrhaging, and the way they do that is to have someone who is very, very closely aligned with Trump. There are plenty of people who still vote for the former president, who still support the former president without somehow claiming the unsavory parts of it. And we're watching a network essentially trying to walk that line. And you know, they're not gonna be the only one.
21: And the truth of us is all of us here agree, as many rational people across this country do believe, that there was not widespread voter fraud and we should have had a peaceful transfer of power. And Joe Biden is the duly elected president. Yeah. Unfortunately, Donald Trump and his base do not think that way. And uh, unfortunately, as well, Fox News will continue to push that narrative, even though we now know, based on the text that we've seen from some of their hosts, that they didn't believe it. But they know their audience wants to see that and they're going to continue to feed what the
10: audience wants. Exactly. It's about continuing to feed the audience to get the ratings. It's not about news. It's not about the truth. It is about the almighty dollar. And while, yes, almost a billion dollars going to Dominion is a lot of money, it's not. That much money to Fox, obviously.
0: What was your response when you saw the the white men don't fight that way? I think I'm quoting that correctly. Uh,
10: It was... I was disgusted. Um, I wasn't surprised that he said something like that. And I don't believe that that's the text that put Fox over. You think there's something else? Oh, 100 percent, because other people on that network say equally disgusting things like Jesse Waters. So I don't believe for a second that that was the one that put him over the edge. And
20: listen, you know, as Maya Angelou taught us all, when somebody shows you you who they are, believe them the first time. And he has been showing himself to be this on air for years now.
0: Yeah. Um, there's also this new report in The Washington Post today saying uh, about what might, might be next for Tucker Carlson, who some people say is bigger than Fox and doesn't need Fox. Um, it says, quote, Carlson wants to moderate his own GOP candidate forum outside of the usual structures of the Republican National Committee debate system. At least one major candidate Trump has told Carlson he's interested, according to a person familiar with the exchange. Uh, Trump has uh, threatened to boycott uh, the RNC debates. Um, What do you
22: make of it? It's interesting when you think about Bill O'Reilly, Glenn Beck... Uh, Megyn Kelly, there have been plenty of personalities that it seemed like they would go on to be bigger than the brand they left behind. That did not prove to be the case necessarily. But we are now in a media environment in which you can build an enormous following or presence and you can reach your audience directly. So this will be kind of a test of that media environment. And I think in a way, Tucker Carlson is the person to do that. I mean, he's like in his basement in Maine, but he very well could have a show that could be meaningful to people if he has the right guests. Tucker's followers will
21: follow Tucker wherever he goes, whatever platform he uses, whether online or digital or what he uses. And look, having worked on many presidential campaigns, when you want to get your message out to the base, which is uh, Tucker's viewership, you will do a debate with Tucker Carlson, no matter what the venue, no matter
22: where, what the and time or the place. And it directly. It, right. The he implications of this so. are enormous. Right. No, it's right. interesting. I'm
0: sorry to interrupt, but just because I remember when you worked for Ted Cruz, um, uh, he did an interview with me. I remember interacting with you in a very professional way, and but it was also like that was an era, I guess, 2015, 2016, where somebody running for president for the Republican nomination was willing to do an interview with CNN and not only just do. Fox and everything to the right of Fox. Um, But it seems like that's where the party is right now, not the Sinunus uh, of the world, but even Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, they only do.
20: Oh, please mention Asa yeah. Hutchinson. Yeah.
0: Asa comes on CNN, too. Yeah. He, but, but but Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, uh, with the exception next week, um, do all, pretty much only conservative media. Right.
21: You have to take your message to all voters, not just the ones that are already in your camp. And that's that's the challenge many people have, whether they are afraid they can't stand up to uh, tough questioning or they want softball questions from uh friendly journalists. And and I think it's imperative on GOP voters, even in the Republican primary, we're just trying to reach the base. You need to reach out to other voters, the independent and undecided voters. They could potentially sway your way if you make a convincing argument.
10: Right. And they're not all watching Fox News. So I do think it's a good primary strategy, but I agree. They have to win the general election. So just talking to Fox or just talking to whatever Tucker's new show is, is not going to work.
0: Yeah, and also, I mean, look, I mean, a lot of voters who are going to vote are people who don't like Biden or Trump, Like right? We've learned that. And right now, Biden leads uh, significantly among those voters. But it, it's not only Fox voters that are going to decide this election. What's,
20: what's ironic, though, is that, you know, part of those texts uh, that, that we saw from Tucker revealed how he felt about Trump. And it wasn't all that good now, was it? And yet now... They've become buzz and bod- buddies again. And, are, and apparently, yeah. he is um, consulting with Trump, despite having called him some pretty dicey names. Pretty tough topics.
0: stuff. Uh, thanks to one and all. And of course, it is Audie Cornish Thursday. Be sure to check out the newest episode of Audie's awesome podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. And if she texts me the link, I will tweet it as soon as possible. Thanks, <laughs> one and all, for being here. New developments? Uh, No, no, absolutely not. New developments in the deaths of four racehorses at Churchill Downs this week, the week leading up to the Kentucky Derby. What that will mean for the most exciting two minutes in sports. Stay with us. In our sports lead, renewed calls for safety in horse racing after four horses died within just five days of each other. And now a trainer for two of those horses, has been suspended indefinitely. All four horses died at Churchill Downs. That's the home of the Kentucky Derby. And this, of course, just days before Saturday's big race. CNN's
4: Nick Watt is with us. Nick, uh, tell us more about the suspended trainer. Well, Jake, uh, Safi Joseph Jr. was supposed to have a runner in the derby itself no longer. He's in his 13th year training, $10 million in earnings last year. So a pretty big player in the sport. We just got this within the past hour from Churchill Downs, quote, Given the unexplained sudden deaths, deaths, we have reasonable concerns about the condition of his horses and decided to suspend him indefinitely until details are analysed and understood. Now, of course, we reached out to Safi Joseph for comment. Haven't heard back just yet.
9: Who we'll takes some wire to wire. Four
4: horses dead in just one week, a very high profile week, the build-up to the Kentucky Derby. The most exciting two minutes in sports. Two horses have been euthanized for humane reasons after injuries on the track, says Churchill Downs. Two more died suddenly of as-yet-unknown causes, both of them trained by Safi Joseph Jr. It, it, yeah, I'm shattered, basically, you know what I mean? because I, I know it, it it can't happen. Like it's, it's mind-boggling. Like The odds of it happening twice is, is a trillion. While a series of events like this is highly unusual, it is completely unacceptable, reads a statement from Churchill Downs about the four deaths. We take this very seriously and acknowledge that these troubling incidents are alarming and must be addressed. Four in a week might be unusual, but racehorses do die. 28 died here at Churchill Downs last year, according to Horse Racing Wrongs, an activist organization that tracks the numbers. The track has not confirmed that total. This sport of Kings was already under scrutiny over horse injuries and deaths, particularly after a spate of fatalities at Santa Anita, California in 2019. Jerry Hollendorfer, a trainer who had four horses die that year, denied doing anything wrong, but was banned from
16: the track after our reporting. People don't understand that Jerry felt really bad when he lost those horses.
4: That's Bob Baffert, racing's grand old man and key player in a scandal that still hangs over Churchill Downs. His horse, Medina Spirit, superstar winner in 21, died later that year and later stripped of that win after a failed post-race drug test. Baffert, who denies wrongdoing, is still banned from this fabled track. We have full confidence in our racing surfaces, say the track's owners after the four deaths this week. We continue press for answers. The surface is often blamed, but we might never know exactly why these horses died. It's not the surface. I think we're just running into a bad streak here. Now, horse racing is really trying to improve its image. There's a new body created by an act of Congress to oversee safety standards nationwide. They called the suspension proactive and necessary. But listen, This is not what horse racing wants. This time of year, we should be talking about mint juleps and hats, not about humane euthanasia and dead horses. Jake. Indeed. Nick Watt,
0: thank you so much. A verdict in our pop culture lead. A Manhattan jury today found Ed Sheeran's song, Thinking Out Loud, does not steal key parts of Marvin Gaye's classic song, Let's Get It On. Sheeran's sentiment after trial, you might say he shifted the focus from, let's get it on to, let's get it over with, saying the bogus copyright claims need to stop.
11: If the jury had
12: decided this matter the other way, we might as well say goodbye to the creative freedom of the world. We need to be able to write our original music and engage independent creation without worrying at every step of the way that such creativity will, will, will be wrongly called into question.
0: It is true that the melodies in both songs do not line up, and even though the chord progressions and rhythms are similar, they do turn up in tons of other popular songs. But don't mind me, I'm just thinking out loud. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room.